Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Nathaniel. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm part of the team here at Oasis. And this morning, I get the privilege of unpacking this powerful passage from God's Word with us. But first, let's take a moment in prayer to ask that God, by His Spirit, would work in our hearts as we look at His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege and the honor that it is to gather together as a community, to spend time praising you in song, to hear from your word and to to unpack it and have it applied to our hearts by your spirit. I ask that you will work through me this morning, that you will guide my words uh, and that you will work in all of us, um, that you will grow us to a deeper knowledge of you, a deeper understanding of you and a deeper appreciation of what it means to, to live a life focused on you and your grace. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever started on something which you thought would be pretty easy. Uh, Turns out it was way more difficult than you expected. I definitely do this to myself on a regular basis. I have this bad habit of thinking of something I want to do. You know, maybe I want to make something or or prepare a meal or whatever it is. Uh, I'll maybe have a look at a YouTube video. Nice quick clip. Someone does it in five minutes. Doesn't make any mistakes. Easy. Uh, expectations are high of a quick project, I get into it, hour later, I've made 10 mistakes, realized I've run out of time, and it's an absolute mess, because my expectations were not at all right. Uh, I wonder if you do similar things to yourself. Uh, I'm reminded of the newspaper article, which is often attributed to Ernest Shackleton. Uh, He was an explorer back in the early 1900s. He was looking for volunteers to go to the North Pole, and he was pretty clear with his expectations. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Ernest Shackleton was very clear about what to expect and the expectations were pretty low. Uh, It's important to have realistic expectations and that is especially true when it comes to following Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus, a bit like Ernest Shackleton, is very clear in setting expectations for what a life following him and sharing with others will be like. He makes it very clear that to follow him is to lead a life which is full of freedom and joy and true life which he gives us. But he's also clear that it won't be smooth sailing, that there will be difficulties and challenges, even opposition in life as we follow him. And that's what we see in practice today in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas, they're continuing their missionary journey. Uh, They push on with their task of sharing the good news of Jesus uh, with people who have never heard of him before. But that leads them directly into difficulty. They encounter open doors to the gospel, but they also encounter opposition. Now, if you're just joining us this morning, we're in a series called To the Ends of the Earth through the book of Acts. Acts tells of how God acts by His Holy Spirit to spread the good news of Jesus far and wide to people who are far away from Him, both geographically and also culturally. And we saw it earlier on, how the good news of Jesus goes to people, groups like the Samaritans and even the Romans, who would have been thought of as being the furthest from God. And in recent chapters, we've looked on as God has worked, particularly through Barnabas and Saul, to spread this good news of Jesus far outside of Jerusalem and Judea, where it started, uh, toward the ends of the earth. We've followed Paul and Barnabas on their journey uh, from Antioch 
through Cyprus, then up through Asia Minor, now what is now Turkey, to a different Antioch. Uh, and all the way, they've been preaching about Jesus to all people, to the Jewish people in their synagogues who are waiting for a saviour, and to everybody, non-Jews, everybody else alike, uh, who need to hear this good news of Jesus. Now, in today's passage, we see the rest of their missionary journey, as Paul and Barnabas first go to Iconium, where they are met with a mixed response. Then, as they proceed to Lystra, where they have a misunderstood message. And finally, as they retrace their steps back home, on the way, demonstrating their mission priorities. That's right, a three-pointer. After these two and four and five-pointer things that Ben and Adam have been pulling recently, good three-point sermon. That knows seriously, though, through these three parts of the journey, we see God faithfully at work the whole time, through the gospel, despite persecution. And throughout, we can be encouraged to persevere in following Jesus, despite any opposition or obstacles that may and, and will come up in our lives. So first, we see the mixed response. We pick up the story as Paul and Barnabas, having left Pisidian Antioch, one of the many Antiochs around the place, they're arriving in the city of Iconium. Uh, now, Iconium here, we can see they've gone from Antioch all the way up the corner, at the start of the orange line, all the way down, 100 k's or so to Iconium. Um, now, Iconium was a pretty significant city. It was located in, a, in an important geographic spot, important on an important trade route. In fact, it's still an important spot today. The third largest city in modern-day Turkey, Konya, is located at the same spot as Iconium was. And as normal, Paul and Barnabas rock up to the synagogue uh, and start preaching to the Jewish people. Now, we don't have their sermons recorded here, but the description of what they're saying, the gospel of grace, gives us a pretty good idea. Gospel means good news. They're sharing the good news about Jesus. Good news of the forgiveness of sin, which is offered through him as a free gift of God's grace. We aren't given a lot of detail about exactly what they said, probably because it's all in the previous chapter, Acts 13. If you were here last week, Ben unpacked how in Paul's sermon there to the Jewish people in the synagogue, he shows how the whole of the Old Testament is there to point us to Jesus. But the whole Bible is a story of God rescuing rebels through Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection. That Jesus has now paid the penalty for our sin for all those who simply place their trust in him. That is good news, gospel, the best news in fact. This is the message which Paul and Barnabas are going around sharing. And that's the same message which we're still sharing today. That's the central message that we're trying to share into our community around here in Bray Park and Warner and Kashmir, all around our, our space. Now, perhaps you're not quite convinced on that message yet. You know, there's many of us here who are Christians who are on board with this. We want other people to know Jesus, but maybe yeah, not quite sold, not quite sure. If that's you, then this passage can show you the importance of the good news of Jesus, the priority, the power to be found in it. And for all of us, whether we've placed our faith in Jesus or not, it sets clear expectations of what our life would and should be like as we seek to follow Jesus and share about him with others. So Paul and Barnabas, they've headed to the local synagogue and they get to work sharing this gospel message. But, as was also the normal case, they have a fairly mixed response. Initially, the response is great. We read there, a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But there was also a number of Jewish people who did not believe that Jesus was the promised Saviour. 
Uh, we read there, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, that phrase, poisoned their minds, is actually translating a, a familiar figure of speech for us from another figure of speech that's in the original text. It actually reads, literally, they stirred up the souls of the others. You know, these people who are opposing, they don't just have a couple of issues with doctrine. They're not trying to talk out and have a discussion about this faith and, and how it applies to the Old Testament. Instead, they're going and they're, they're leading others astray. They're riling up a crowd. They're trying to, trying to emotionally build support against this message that Paul and Barnabas are speaking. And so, in the face of this unruly opposition, what do Paul and Barnabas do? What's their response? As we read there, they saw resistance, so they stayed. Now, they didn't see resistance, but they stayed. They saw resistance, so they stayed. They saw that this mixed response, uh, this, this misinformation that was being spread, this riling up of, of, of hearts, that meant they needed to stick around and do their best to help people see clearly the good news of Jesus. And incredibly, even though we, we read God confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders, they're doing miracles by God's power to show that this is the real deal, there's still many who don't believe. Now, that's not, to be, uh, that's not really all that unexpected. Many rejected Jesus Himself despite the great signs and wonders that He did. And despite the early explosive growth rate of the early church, there were still many who refused to believe and, and place their faith in Jesus. Because the sticking point of the Christian faith has always been the message, not the miracles, not the divine claims, but that message. Now, that's, that's an encouragement for us today when we experience a mixed response when sharing about Jesus. Because today also, just as it was then, as it always has been, trusting in Jesus is more than an intellectual acceptance of a historical fact. It means humbling ourselves. It means recognizing that we are deeply broken and we can't fix ourselves. That we have rebelled against the God who created us. That we need His grace and forgiveness. That we need to accept Him as our Lord and as our Savior. And that's a message which is a difficult one for many hearts to accept. And so it often will lead to a mixed response. So we should expect that God will work powerfully in some hearts. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably seen this, God working in people's hearts, in our hearts, making us alive, bringing us to a space where we can accept Him, place our trust and faith in Him. But that there are also those who reject the gospel message. Now, Paul and Barnabas preach here for some time, seeking to share with more people the life that is found in Jesus. But the opposition in Iconium grows more and more intense, to the point where we read, there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it, and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding countryside, where they continued to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas recognize their lives are in danger, they've got a lot more people to share the good news with, and so they, they hoof it, they get out, and they head away down the road, because there are still many people who they can share the good news of Jesus with. And they decide they're going to lie low for a little bit now. They head to some small country towns, about a hundred kilometers, kilometers or so away. And there, where they experience a misunderstood message. So they make their way to the small country market town of Lystra, 
Now, Lystra is a while away. You can sort of see they've traveled down. They've gone over a little mountain range there. Um, it was a market city, so it was large enough to have a temple to Zeus where locals would make offerings, but it wasn't a big deal, uh, not an urban center or anything. So Paul and Barnabas rock up there, and as they normally do, they get straight to preaching the good news about Jesus. Uh, and something unusual happens at the start. As we read there, in Lystra, there was a man who was lame. Now, I'm pretty sure in the translation here that lame doesn't mean uncool, uh, that the lame instead means he wasn't able to walk. Uh, he could have been uncool? Don't know, not entirely certain. Uh, anyway, this guy who had been crippled from birth, uh, there has never been a time in his life when he could walk. And this was even more significant for him then than it would be for somebody today. Uh, because back then, there was no social net, there was no uh, NDIS, there was no Centrelink, there were no wheelchairs to help with the mobility. Uh, to be a cripple meant being a beggar, uh, to be seen as, a, as an unnecessary uh, inconvenience to society, to be on the outskirts, to be begging for, for survival. So Paul looks at this crippled man and he sees, as we read there, that he had the faith to be healed. Now that's a phrase to sort of dwell on because it's easy to, to read that and misinterpret that as if, you know, if you build up to a certain amount of faith, God will just do something and perform a miracle and give a healing. But that's not what it's saying. It doesn't imply in any way that there's a certain amount of faith needed to, to tick off any healing box, like a threshold you have to reach. That's not the way it works. Rather, it's stating that there is generally a presence of faith to some extent and in some form when God heals. That's a principle we see all through the Bible in Jesus' ministry as well, that there's some form of faith when healing happens. That doesn't mean that healing won't happen all the time. It sometimes does and sometimes will. As, as Adam helpfully explained in a sermon on this topic a while ago, he said, healing is possible, so we should pray. That healing is not assured in this life, so we can trust. But that complete healing is promised in the life to come, so we can hold on. Now, this particular man, he is healed, as we read there in Acts 14, verse 10, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he jumped up and began to walk. Now, this is the sort of clear, powerful miracle which you might think would cause the whole crowd to wholeheartedly accept the message that Paul and Barnabas have been sharing. Unfortunately, the crowd haven't really been listening very well, and they get the complete wrong idea. Uh, maybe at some point you've tuned out during a sermon, probably while I was preaching, and had no idea what was going on, something similar to that. Um, this, this crowd is made up of local Lyconian people, right, and they worshipped the, the Greek gods. Uh, so we saw there, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, their native language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, there's actually a local legend we have preserved from, from earlier historical sources that in this area there was a, a, a legend that Zeus and Hermes had visited the area before uh, in disguise and weren't recognized. So this crowd wasn't going to make the same mistake. They're all ready to celebrate, make a huge deal. Now, this isn't ironic only in the sense that Paul and Barnabas are speaking the message of Jesus, who actually is God, who became fully man. Uh, but it's also a bit ironic in that Paul and Barnabas initially don't even realize what's going on. You know, the crowd's reacting, they're probably like, yes, awesome, they're going to claim faith in Jesus. 
not what happens, because the people are speaking in their, their native Lyconian language. So Paul and Barnabas don't understand until the ceremony is ready to start. Now, people rocking up from, from one culture and uh, being mistaken for gods in a different culture is actually a surprisingly common thing. Uh, it happens through history, and people aren't normally all that honest about it. I'm reminded of a very reliable historical source, uh, the classic kids movie, The Road to El Dorado. Don't know if you've seen that one. Um, is Miguel and Tulio, they're Spanish con artists, and they accidentally stow away on a, on, a, on a ship, a treasure ship bound for the newly discovered Americas in search of gold and riches and treasures. Uh, now, Miguel and Tulio, they eventually stumble across El Dorado, the city of gold, uh, and the residents there mistake them for being gods and start worshipping them. Uh, now, they aren't particularly honest in that situation. They see an opportunity to store up as much gold and jewels as they can, plan to get it back over to Europe and live like kings. Uh, now, that doesn't end up working out for them, uh, but I see some similarities here in that Paul and Barnabas had a similar, oppo similar opportunity. They could have been regaled as, as gods. They could have had this higher honor possible, which is a very different experience to the previous city where they were chased out on threat of stoning. What a chance that, that could have been for Paul and Barnabas to take over the city on their own terms, to have a break from this whole, you know, wandering around the countryside and getting kicked out of cities sort of business. Misplaced popularity is a, a weapon, a temptation, which Satan often can and does use to try to hinder the gospel message. Now, that's a danger which has caused churches and ministries to be corrupted many times over. When the messengers, the ones preaching the good news, get confused with the message and things get mixed up. When human speakers start to give themselves the honor which God deserves. Or when they allow others to start giving them the honor which God deserves. And we might not call preachers Zeus today, but personality cults can form and the preacher can be elevated above the message. Now, no church leader has got an extra large helping of the Holy Spirit. We all have the same spirit in us. We all have the same message, regardless of how we go about communicating it in our role as the body of Christ. But notice what Paul and Barnabas do when they're confronted with this temptation. They're desperate to set the story straight because they aren't here to glorify themselves. So Paul and Barnabas, they rush out to tell the Lyconians they've got it all wrong. They need to set the story straight. And the gist of Paul's message here is recorded for us. You know, last week we saw, uh, as, as Ben walked us through Acts 13, uh, a passage where Paul shows how the whole of the Old Testament points towards Jesus. He has this Jewish audience who know the Old Testament well, and so he point, takes that and points them to Jesus. This week we see how he shares the good news of Jesus with people who have no understanding of who God is at all, no background to grasp who God is. And that's really helpful for us. Maybe you or, or somebody you know who you want to share about Jesus with is in a similar boat. They don't really have much background knowledge about the whole Old Testament creation through Moses, through you know, the story of Elijah, the story of David. Um, and if you try and explain all of that, you sort of get bogged down and confused and, and they sort of zone out. Or maybe that's you and you've zoned out already. Maybe all those details can get a bit much and it can be difficult to get a clear idea of who Jesus is and why it's so important to know him. So how does Paul explain the good news to these Lyconians? Well, he's got a pretty simple two-part approach. He finds common ground with their beliefs and then he points it to God, to the good news of Jesus. 
So to people in this small country town who followed the, the local Greek gods, he points them to the beautiful natural setting around them. You know, the, this, the town was in a beautiful valley, mountains off in the background. And so he points to this physical world, which in their belief system uh, was older, was there before the, the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes rocked up. He points them to these things and he says that God created them, that God made the world. We've got, he points to the God's goodness in, in providing rain, providing crops which grow, that sustains people in their lives. Paul's showing that the existence of a created world implies that there is a creator, and that creator have to, has to be above everything else. Uh, we read a similar thing in Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. You know, if we look back at Acts 13, or jump forward to Acts 17, Paul uses this two-part approach time and time again. He finds shared ground with the people who are listening, and then he brings the message to Jesus, shows how Jesus applies. So on a so how could we apply that same approach in sharing about Jesus with others, with our work colleagues, with people at school or uni or, or family members? Well, here's some ideas. On a day when a lot of people are shaken by the death of the Queen, who's been the only monarch most of us have known in our lives, we have the opportunity to point to the true King, the one whose reign will last forever and who has defeated death. In a culture where many people are searching for self-worth in empty things, money and, and popularity and status, social media attention, we have the opportunity to share about how each of us are made in the image of God, made to know Him, made to be known by Him, that each of us are deeply loved by Him, regardless of what others think. In an economy where many people are uncertain about their assets or their financial situation, we can point to God who knows us so well and who cares for us so deeply that, as Jesus says, all, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not because you are of more value than many sparrows. You know, we should and we never will need to edit the Word of God to, to change the message in any way to appeal to people. But we need to start where people are at, find that point of contact, and then show how Jesus fills our true deepest needs. You know, whether we start with the hunger for real spirituality, a need for love and community, a search for freedom, a longing for personal significance, wherever we begin, if we have a perspective that Jesus is the ultimate end goal, the ultimate fulfillment of all true human aspiration, we're always going to end up talking about Jesus. So getting back to Paul and Barnabas, they manage to avoid being worshipped as gods, but their problems aren't over yet. Their Jewish opponents from all the way back in Iconium have managed to track them down all the way here. And these opponents find a town which has just been embarrassed by having their worship rejected. So they waste no time riling up the crowd against the apostles. Paul is dragged out of the city, stoned and left for dead. Now that really is a roller coaster of different responses, hey? Like, you had a great initial response, oh no, they misinterpreted everything, good news, and then all of a sudden they're stoning him again. It's, it's all over the place. But Paul hadn't actually died. You know, this probably wasn't a resurrection, but more God preserving Paul's life because he still has more to go. And despite almost dying, Paul doesn't seem that shaken. You know, he hops up, 
walks back into the city, stays in the city overnight, and then heads on his journey the next morning to share about Jesus in more cities. Paul had clear expectations. He knew what he was in for. He expected this sort of thing to happen as he shared about Jesus, and he wasn't going to give up. There are many other Christians who we could point to who had a similar attitude in their lives, put their lives on the line because they knew what was involved. I'm reminded in particular of Corrie ten Boom. I'm not sure if you know Corrie's story. She was a Dutch lady who in World War II was part of the network hiding Jewish people in their homes and, and ferrying them out from under Nazi rule so they could get to safety. She was caught, she was put in a concentration camp um, and in, in an interview I watched recently, Corrie describes the conditions in this camp. You know, there was 800 women crammed in a building designed for 200. The lice were so bad, the guards wouldn't even come in to the room. But she calls that a blessing, saying that meant that they couldn't interrupt her sessions teaching the Bible. You know, there was starvation, there was cold, there was humiliation by the male guards there. Now, Corrie survived this, but her sister Betsy, who went in with her, her best friend, she died there. But Corrie had snuck in a Bible. She shared every day from that Bible with the women around. And she says this, Many of the people around me had never heard of the Lord Jesus. And many died. But many died with the name of Jesus on their lips. And God used Betsy and me to bring them to the Lord. That was worthwhile. All our suffering, even Betsy's death, to be used to save a soul for eternity is worth our whole lives. Now, I don't expect, I certainly hope, that, that I and we won't go through that extreme of suffering for Jesus. But this is an encouragement to persevere in sharing about Jesus. Even if that brings a, a mixed response, misunderstanding or even mistreatment. You know, the the Lystron experience here shows two different but equally wrong reactions to the gospel. First, misunderstanding, then rejection. But Paul's response shows us that it is worthwhile to continue on, to trust in God, to do His will, because He is the one who is in control. The message of Jesus took root here in Lystra, and it would continue to grow here. In fact, you may have heard of Paul's famous apprentice, Timothy. The letters in the Bible, First and Second Timothy, are written to Timothy by Paul. Timothy was actually a native of Lystra, you know, Paul visits here, he's chased out after, um, after being stoned. He comes back a couple of years later, and on the way through, he picks up Timothy, who was a young believer in the church, which had taken root there. Even when we, when we can't see it, God is still at work to fulfill His plans. We can confidently persevere in following Jesus, whatever the odds, because we're not in charge of making it all work. We're in charge of faithfully following Him and doing His will. And He is more than capable of handling everything else. So God has preserved Paul and Barnabas through their journey. But they knew what to expect. And they wanted to make sure that the churches which they had seen established also knew what to expect. They wouldn't be surprised when they also encountered difficulties in following Jesus. And that brings us finally to their mission priorities. Now, they make a return journey, uh, going along to each of the cities they visited and encouraging them, teaching them, establishing leadership in them. And we can see here on the map, it would have been a lot easier for them to go from Derby back through Tarsus, where Paul grew up, he could visit his family, and then pop down to Antioch. 
But instead, they take the long route all the way back through where they'd been chased out, where they'd experienced all this negative um, treatment. They take it all the way back so they can visit each of those churches that they had established. It was a priority for them to return and strengthen and encourage and establish biblical leadership there. And the way that they go about it shows us the importance of clear expectations and of strong biblical leadership. So Paul and Barnabas, they returned to each city and we read they were strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And their encouragement is a bit of a weird one. They encourage by saying, we must go through many hardships to to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's especially important to set clear expectations of following Jesus, because for many, the quite natural assumption when you put your faith in the Creator, the Lord of all heaven and earth, the one who is in control of all things, who loves us and cares about us, the natural expectation is, well, all right, if He's so great and so loving and so kind, trusting in Him, following Him, He'll reward me by making my life really easy. He'll just take away all of the problems. He'll take away all of the challenges. But as we've seen, that's not what the Christian life is about. We should expect that there will be hardships before Jesus returns, when he'll fully establish his kingdom and take them all away. Whether those hardships are opposition and persecution, or more common in our experience, whether that's the many other effects of living in a fallen, broken world, experiencing the decay which happens to our bodies, experiencing grief, experiencing loss, the many things that can happen as as we live in a fallen world. Following Jesus doesn't mean that they'll just be taken away. It doesn't only mean facing opposition, it could be, but it means giving up our comforts, giving up our pleasures to do what is right, to do what is best for other people. So if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're on the outside looking in, the expectation shouldn't be that everything will be sunshine and roses. Hardships in the Christian life are to be expected, but they aren't the end of the story and they won't stop God. He won't take every difficulty away, but He will never abandon us. And He allows His people to go through these sufferings, to go through these difficulties. And as He does so, He grows us and He shares His message. He uses us to bring more people to find this true life in Jesus. And the Christian life isn't just suffering. There's so much more. There is true joy. There is true contentment. There is true fulfillment. There is true peace with God to be found in this life and then eternally in the next. As Jesus himself says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. The flip side of this, of course, is that if following Jesus is easy for you, if if nothing's difficult in the Christian walk, something might actually be not quite right there. You know, if you're expecting the Christian life to be easy, or if you find that your faith is comfortable and doesn't demand anything much from you and you don't run into challenges, you might be expecting or experiencing something which is not what the Bible describes as the Christian life. It could be that there's a space there where you need to come to God in prayer and say, Lord, what can I give for your kingdom? What can I use to help other people find life in you? How can I be challenged to grow in faith and to be a witness for your name? Now, the other part of what Paul and Barnabas did was they appointed elders in each church. Through the New Testament, we see this structure of of leadership by elders, uh, a group of people who are established, appointed to, to lead God's church. 
Christian faith was never a disorganized mess which had to be sort of polished up and, and fixed up along the way. The pattern for church leadership was clear right from the start, and we see it in practice here. And we also see an important principle about this church leadership, that it's not primarily about putting great people in place, but it's primarily about putting people in place who are dependent on and who are filled by the Spirit of the one true God. It's important to see in the verse there that the emphasis isn't on appointing elders, the emphasis is on committing them to God. We read, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. They take eldership seriously because it is serious. And so how do you take something that significant? You bring it to God. They spent time praying and fasting, which is their practice with really big decisions, seeking God's guidance. Because leaders aren't just going to pop into place and then live their lives perfectly, lead with perfect leadership, because they always need God. Whether it's elders in the church or whether it's other leaders in our church family, we need to be fully reliant on God and we need to be committed to God. So we can apply the, the significance of church leadership in the way that we pray. Please pray for the leaders in our church. Please ask God to keep us safe, to guide us away from temptation, to, to not let us become focused on ourselves, to constantly point back towards Him. When the time comes to elect new elders, think deeply and nominate people who would be a witness for God, who would lead well in our community. When elders do the, the great work that they're doing and make decisions and lead us, let's respect their leadership and get behind that, committing them constantly to God in prayer. And if you ever find yourself moving, looking for another church, make sure that a top priority there is to look for a church where biblical leadership is present, where elders are pointing towards God, where people are looking towards Him for satisfaction, for, for fulfillment, for completion, where His guidance is front and centre, made up of people who rely on God, not puffing themselves up, but with prayer and, and with fasting, committing themselves to God. So, once Paul, of, Paul and Barnabas have finished encouraging and, and establishing churches in each of the cities they've been to, they finally make their return trip back home, bringing to an end their first missionary journey. They head back to home base, Antioch, and they report back. Now, we can see, as we saw earlier, it's a bit of a trek. So they've gone all the way around. They've taken a long sea, sea voyage back to Antioch. They've traveled thousands of kilometers through the course of this journey on sea and, and walking. They've been through persecution. They've had mixed responses. Paul's almost died. So what's the report that Paul and Barnabas bring back? You know, if that was me, I'd probably get back into church and be like, back again, guys. You humble, amazing preacher over here. You've been through stuff. I've been walking so much, I think I should take a comfy seat, you know, in church, and Ben can do lock-up for me, and let me tell you about all the people who picked on me, that was so mean, but I kept on going despite it, you know, God's good and all that stuff. What's Paul and, Paul and Barnabas's message? Well, they don't mope about all they've been through, but they celebrate all that God has done. They give God all of the credit. You know, we read there, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You know, they focus on God having worked through them and God having opened this door of faith. God's action is emphasized, not because Paul and Barnabas didn't follow him faithfully, but because God is the one who is at work through his gospel. 
He calls us to follow him and then he works through us and through everything else. God has opened the door of faith to these Gentiles. That is the big take-home from their, from their preaching. And that is the same door of faith which remains open to us. In Jesus, God has opened this door of faith so that anyone from any background, from any nation, regardless of what we have done, can come to know him simply by placing our faith in him. He reaches out, he brings us spiritually to life, and he calls us to follow him, to place our trust in him. And that faith in Jesus is easy to take hold of. It is eternally worthwhile. It won't make our life suddenly miraculously great and easy, but it will lead to true spiritual life, to fulfillment, to peace, and to eternity with our Lord. That door remains wide open. So is that a door which you have walked through? The experience of Paul and Barnabas in this passage helps us to set our expectations well for what a life spent following Jesus and sharing about him will look like. And as we share the good news of Jesus in a world which is increasingly hostile, we will experience a mixed response. We will see times and cases where the message and the messenger get mixed up and the message becomes misunderstood. We may even encounter persecution in years to come. We will encounter difficulties in whatever form. But we can persevere in following God, knowing that He is in control and that He will spread His gospel. He will complete His purposes against all odds. This life won't be sunshine and roses, but those who follow Jesus will never truly perish. They will never be defeated, no matter what happens in this life. So we can move forward with a certain hope, following Jesus through thick and through thin, looking ahead to that day when he will return, when he will bring his kingdom to completion, when we will be with him forever. And as we look forward to that day, we can share in a 